I just need to get through the next couple of weeks and then I'll be able to kick back a bit. Who knows that old chestnut? I just need to get through to the holidays and then... Um, what magic am I assuming is going to happen then? If you're in a big job and have the relentless drive to match, it's a constant lie that we tell ourselves. Yeah, then when I arrive, then I'll rest. The challenge is you might love your job, the buzz, the wins, the people, and still be exhausted by all of it. I'm talking about a particular kind of exhaustion, especially during those ultra-intense periods where we push down the red flares that our body is sending up. Today's guest is former Disney executive, Dr. David Udis. Disney is the happiest place on earth, David told me. It's the place where there's no limits creatively or otherwise. You have to create your own. In his early 40s, David was living the dream in that buzzy, chronically exhausted state, traveling the globe, working with incredibly creative people. He fed himself the same line he had done so often before. I just need to get through to the holidays and then I'll recover. David's body had other plans. In this episode, you'll learn about the hot little motor burning beneath David's relentless drive, although this never occurred to him at the time. I'm always curious what might be driving that willingness to ignore the body's red flags and to push oneself at virtually any cost. You'll also hear what David learned from his experience. I know this will be useful for you too. Before we dive in, welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, former investment banker turned executive coach. This is a show for anyone whose life looks shiny and successful on the outside, but inside, you're secretly exhausted. And no matter what you've achieved, you never feel good enough. You're wondering how long you can sustain this pace because it's exhausting to keep going at this speed, but you can't fathom stopping, even though you often fantasize about it. These are the leadership conversations that no one is having about what's underneath the shiny veneer of success and what a new way of winning at life might look like. I drop us right into the conversation where David shares his big life turning point. Ready? Let's go. I, I really do love my work. I always have. I'm, I'm, it's definitely a major piece of my life. I also love my family and love spending time with them. And my kids are a little bit older now, a little bit more grown. But going back a few years when they were younger, you know, I would really be there when I was spending time with them. But when I wasn't, I was highly invested in work. I mean, fully in meetings, travel. I remember this stint where I did three weeks of travel and programs that were back-to-back literally all over the world in three different geographical regions around the world. I think I was home for half a day every 10 days during three and a half weeks or something like that. I remember it almost killed me. But there was a time working up to a holiday. And I was probably six weeks away from the holiday. And it had just been a a period of intense delivery, creation, relationship handling, politics, maneuvering. 
And on behalf of others, I was serving others and doing that. I don't think I was being politically driven, but I was certainly balancing and, and juggling that. And I remember saying to myself, this is awesome. I love the energy. I love the impact. I love, I'm thriving on being able to have these opportunities. And I also remember saying to myself, I am freaking tired. Actually, I'm exhausted. I'm, I feel like I'm going to fall over. I feel like I can't keep going. And I remember saying, I'm approximately six weeks away from this holiday. And if I just get to the holiday, I'm good. Then it'll all be good. It'll be good. I'm good. Then I'll, 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 I'll rest on the holiday. I'll chill. I'll, I'll replenish. I'll rejuvenate. And I'll get time with my family too. So that's all good. Let's just get to the holiday. And I kept going and I kept going and I kept going and I kept going. I remember at one point thinking to myself, what would happen like if I, if I don't make it, like if I, if I don't get up the next day, because I've known some people over my time, actually much younger than me earlier in life, uh, early when I was studying for one of my degrees, I, I know a guy who had just had a baby. The baby was a year old, uh, he and his wife. And I used to see him in class. He was this really tall guy. I mean, he was like six foot plus, right? Big guy. That's why he stood out. He had this presence just because of his physical experience when you were with him. And one day, a professor comes into the room. And he says, listen, I have an announcement to make. Uh, you know, our colleague so-and-so didn't wake up this morning. He's passed away. Sudden, doesn't seem to be any reason for it, as if a reason would have, you know, made it better or something. But but there was. There was no, it wasn't a heart attack. There was just no reason. He just didn't wake up. He passed away in his sleep. I think he was in his 30s at the time. And I remember that being shocking. Like, oh my God. I, I remember I sent his family a card and I was just a really a sentiment that that said, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget him just, just because of that experience. And I, I remember going through this period in my own life and thinking, you know what? This is all for good cause, meaning I'm, I'm doing this because it's something I love. I, I love the work and I love what I'm doing. I'm really good with that. And if I don't wake up tomorrow, I'm, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm, I'm really okay with that. Like, it's okay because I've given my all here and that's pretty good. So I get to the holiday. I make it. And I'm like, oh. But I'm not feeling good the last couple of days leading up to the holiday, meaning I'm, I'm really, really not feeling good. Like it's beyond exhaustion. I'm just, I'm off. And I, I say to my wife one night before the holiday, hey, I'm going to go to bed early, like way early. And uh, I go to bed and I get up in the middle of the night. I'm, I'm kind of dizzy and I'm like out of it. I'm off and my wife's sleeping and I, uh, I get up to go to the restroom and I'm, I'm like off. I'm just really, really off. Like I'm off balance. I'm off kilter. Next thing I know is like a flash and I wake up and I've literally got an arm in the toilet. Like a whole arm is like shoved into the toilet. And my other arm is like holding me up on the floor. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And I'm like, oh my God, I take my arm out of the toilet. It's just like wet. And sort of stand up and I'm like, wow, okay, I really need to lay back down, you know? And uh, I get up again, I, I, I sort of uh, I walk out. And the next thing I know, there's another flash. And I'm opening my eyes, but I'm really kind of woozy. I can only open one eye. And my wife is looking at me from 
across the hall screaming and yelling. And I, I'm realizing that it's wet. There's something that's wet around me. And I start to come to a little bit more. And, and I, I kind of, I'm like, wow, I reach up to my face. And so my head is like gashed and I'm bleeding out of my head and I'm lying in a small pool of blood. My arm is like aching and, and like I can't move it by my elbow. And my wife is seemingly on the phone to somebody. But it's also kind of like a, like an echo chamber. Like I can't really discern everything that's going on. What happened was I blacked out. I passed out flat and landed literally. I just went killed right over. Landed right on hardwood, uh, full body weight. As I blacked out, I smashed my eye open and, and cracked my head. I didn't break my arm, but I probably would have had I been there to support myself with my arm because my elbow was like sort of like knocked out of socket and I was bleeding on the floor and I couldn't move. I mean, I wasn't going anywhere and I was kind of out of it. My wife was calling emergency services and um, my, my two younger kids come in and like it's the middle of the night and they're they're sitting there kind of freaked out. And, you know, so they say they're bringing in paramedics. And I remember so the paramedics come in and these two big guys and they're 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 ripping off my shirt and they're putting these things on my chest and I can remember that and they they were fumbling they couldn't get the stickies to like hold to my chest or something and one guy's looking at the other and one guy was taking my blood pressure and I remember him saying I don't know what he said but my my blood pressure my my pulse was something like beating at like I don't know 30 maybe uh 30 beats is all they got not a lot and it was faint and one guy looks at the other and trying to get these stickers on and he says i remember because they were right above me and he says he's like hey man like we got to get this guy out of here he's not going to make it and i remember hearing that and realizing uh-oh that that's really serious like i was cognizant enough to realize wow that's not kind of i'm just in a bad way but they throw me on this stretcher and they walk me down the stairs and they carry me out i remember looking up at the sky because it was night and seeing the stars and it was freezing out it was like cold i mean immediately it was like immersed in it was like ice and I see the stars and I remember thinking, oh my God, I may not be coming back. And at that moment, I remember saying to myself, was that okay? Am I okay with where I am at that point in time? And I absolutely wasn't. I said to you going back, you know, a little ways before that, I said, hey, if I, if, you know, this is okay if I don't may. And, and here I am, I'm seeing the sky and thinking like, if I don't come back and see my family again, I'm not okay with that at all. What am I talking about? What am I doing? And they throw me onto the ambulance and drive and I'm saying, guys, can you, can you give me, I, I could speak still. And they said, can you give me a blanket? I'm, I'm freezing. I'm like, no, 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 man, you're, you're, you're okay. You, we got to get you to the hospital. And so they get me to the hospital and I remember feeling like I was going to black out again. And I remember saying to myself, do not black out because I really thought if I blacked out, I may never come back. And um, they wheeled me into the ER. It was sounds and lights, people running around. They came running over when they wheeled me in. What jolted me back was I saw them bring the defibrillator with the paddles 
And I saw them wheeling it in as if they were going to put that on me because I was very low pulse, low, low blood pressure. I was like in and out, but, but still there. And I saw that and I remember saying, I am not going out. I am not going to lose consciousness again. And I didn't. That's not like a pat on my back or anything. But what I'm saying is it scared me that if I had lost consciousness, I wasn't coming back. And um, I slowly was able, they got me to regulate without defibrillating me. And um, as I came out of that over the next day or two, I remember saying to myself, I don't want to die. And I don't want to die for work. And I'm still really intense when it comes to my work. Still really intense when it comes to life. But I've never forgotten that. That really taught me never enough is not okay. Thank you for sharing that. That was really powerful. Yeah, well, thanks for setting it up. It's uh it's a it was a a turning point in my struggle with it's not enough. There were red flags in the run-up to David's collapse. Chest palpitations, numbness in his arms, his balance was off kilter. He was also struggling to sleep, which initially felt like a good thing. So he'd wake up in the middle of the night, bubbling with this flow of creative ideas. So he'd get up and work for a couple of hours, which felt like a high at first, because it meant he was being even more creative and efficient. But eventually, his battery just wasn't recharging. Though his desire to keep pushing and to keep going was as strong as ever. This is what consultant clinical neuropsychologist Dr. Antonia Kirkby was talking about in episode 55 when she said that feelings of exhaustion become normalized over time, diminishing our sense of seriousness around them. So you eventually forget what it feels like to be rested and energized. In short, the red flags feel less red flaggy. Let's dive back into the episode. So David clearly loved his job, and I'm curious what else might have been driving him to push himself beyond his limits. We can talk about the, the, the lots of signs, lots of things that come up, but for me, it's, it's, it's really simple, Mandy. It's two things. One is that this drive in me that's always been, I never want to finish something and think I left something out there on the field, on the table, in the moment, on the conversation, on the call, in the pitch, whatever it might be. I never want to feel like I left something out there. But but that's been after the fact. The driver has been, when you tell me I can't do something, or you tell me that I'm less than, that's a fuse. That's a fuse, and I was, I've was i heard that, I've had that fuse lit since I was very young by people around me. And when that fuse is lit, then I'm never going to leave anything out there. Nothing's going to be left, even if it means, as I shared, that I'm going down with it. Until I go down, nothing's going to be left on the table. Are you open to telling us a little bit about that fuse from a young age. What was that? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, for one, growing up, I was a fat kid. I've had other people tell me over, ah, oh, you weren't that fat. Yeah, you weren't that fat. But when you grow up as a kid who's fat, as, a, as an overweight kid, 
especially, I'm sure it's tough even today. I, I see it. But when I grew up a couple decades back, it's really hard. Obesity wasn't as much of an issue in the world as it is today. So you stood out more, get picked on, get told you're less than. And that was really hard. That was really hard when people would you know, say, you can't do this. You'll never be that. And so it took me a while to lose that. I lost it in my teens, but I grew up with that. The truth is I still have, it's not enough in me. It's still there. I, I can see it clearly more so. I see faster. I can do some things about it, but it's still there. I don't have it beaten. I haven't conquered it. And though I, I'm expert in some things, I'm not an expert in that. Then I can tell you, oh, yeah, I've cured that. No, I haven't. It's still there. Probably always will be. I've, I've learned to recognize it and maybe live with it more. So it, it started there, but, but that theme has stuck with me. I, I remember I shared with you recently, Mandy, I said, you know, I don't know if you knew I have my doctorate. So I earned my doctorate. There was a time back in high school where I had a, a teacher, a mentor even, who said to me, look, let's face it, you're not going to be a doctor. And I can still remember that moment. That was crushing. Now, I, I was struggling in, in some academics, so there's no question I wasn't doing very well. I also wasn't really focused, and there was other extenuating circumstances going on and family issues, and there were things in my way. And so, yes, I was not living up to my potential, absolutely. But you're not going to be a doctor. That stuck with me for years. Guess what I am today? I earned my doctorate. Not because she said I couldn't be, but I can tell you that lit the fuse. I earned it because I wanted to go out and get it. I wanted to do something with it. But the fact that she said that, to me, it was really crystal clear. I had two choices. I either accept that, she's right, I'm not going to be a doc. Or F that, yes, I am. And no one's going to tell me I can't be. And I still think about that in the world today. No one can tell you you can't be something if you want to go after it. There's a chapter on overachievement in the School of Life's book on self-hatred, learning to like oneself. It's linked in the show notes. So here's a gut punch of a line from this book. And I quote, High achievers have been driven to act not simply from talent or creativity, though these are no doubt present as well, but from a primordial sense that there is something shameful about them in their basic state, and that they must hence clothe themselves in the garments of success to escape the humiliation of their true selves. Unquote. Oof. The fat kid. The dumb kid, the you'll never amount to anything kid, the I'm mortified by a parent's alcoholism and I'm going to prove myself kid. That was me. Of course, this isn't always the case, but there's often something burning under the outsized efforts of these ultra successful and efficient people. It's being able to see that 
and to bring some compassion and generosity to oneself that can start to shift this relationship between self-worth and relentless activity. Next, David shares how his collapse helped to shift his way of being. I don't think I took the reality that I won't always be here for real. When I was younger, I certainly thought, yeah, I can live forever. Now, not really, but yeah, a little bit really. But at that point in time, I thought, okay, I might get wiped out a bit, but then I'll replenish, I'll recover, I'll be okay. But when I saw those stars and I could barely feel my heartbeat, but I felt the cold and I'm being whisked off to the hospital, I thought, oh my God, I may not come back. This is real. I I even think I used that with whatever cognizance I had in that moment. I think I used that to help me try to stay really present right there because I was really scared that if, again, if I had dropped out, I wouldn't come back. So knowing that that's real shined a light for me that said, you know, on one level, I take it for granted that I open my eyes every day and I'm still breathing. And maybe I shouldn't take that for granted. Maybe I should really, really appreciate that. And again, it's so easy to say that. I'm listening to myself say it right now. I'm thinking it is so easy to say that, but to live into that every day and really, really feel that is different and critical. So David is inviting us to get really present with our mortality. One day, the music will stop and there won't be a chair left for us to sit on. That's it. Game over. And we know that in an abstract kind of way, but there can still be this arrogance about pushing ourselves through those busy periods as though we don't have any limits. My husband and I, we made our wills, we picked our final resting places, I've written a eulogy or a couple as a self-development exercise. I even have an app called The Final Countdown that tells me, more or less, I have about 37 years, 363 days, and a handful of hours to live, unless life has other plans. I think about death almost every day, because it helps me not to fart around with the time I have left. Does it always work? Hell no. But shares like David's in this conversation can remind us to be awake to our lives more of the time because we all have an expiry date for absolutely real. So David, what would you offer someone who's going at pace, feeling like they're in this blur of business travel, meetings, parents' evenings, maybe their bodies are sending up flares, and whilst there's this acknowledgement that this can't go on long term, There's this phenomena that you discussed of, I just need to make it through till the holidays. And then this blur of a mode is what I call being in the tunnel. So sidebar to move the plot along, David did stay at Disney for a few more years after his collapse, and he did find a new way of working that was more sustainable. But to keep it real, he also fell into some old habits again, but he caught it more quickly this time. So eventually he resigned, and now he's an executive coach and consultant who works with senior leaders on situations like these and others. So David, both as someone who has experienced the frenzied pace of the tunnel that almost killed you, and now as an executive coach, what would you say to someone who's in this blur of a place right now? 
I would say this, and, and this is something I saw recently, which is so meaningful to me. There is no there, there. There's only here, here. There is no there, there. There is only here, here. I would say it'll all go on without you. So let go. Let go, because I think when you're, and hey, I, I own it. There is that arrogance. I completely agree. I accept that. I am arrogant, hopefully less so today. But certainly in a prior time, completely arrogant. Oh no, I can I can keep going. I can I can take it to the end. I'm I'm good. I'm good. But to let go and realize that there may be more that is important to you than you're realizing. So let's impro this. So I'm in the tunnel and I'm going at pace. I'm like, yeah, yeah, David, I know what you're saying. That's all super important, but I just need to get through this thing. And as soon as I get through this thing, I'll remember what's important. It's like there's um, an acknowledgement without hearing. Is there a way to get through to somebody or do you think that they actually have to hit a brick wall of sorts if there's this type of driver in someone? I think it can go both ways. For some people, they may have to hit that wall. For others, yeah, yeah. For for maybe for many of your listeners, Mandy, that might be it. But it's kind of a disappointing way to think about it. I don't like disappointment. So I, I would put something else out there, which would be, you know, something I've learned over my time, something I feel I got away from too. Somebody says, where are you in your body? My first reaction is, what do you mean? Where am I in my body? I'm right here. What are you talking about? And they say again, where are you in your body? And I say again, what do you mean? Where am I in my body? I'm standing right here. I'm here on the ground. And they say, no, well, where are you located? Where do you feel you're at in your body? And then I go, oh, well, okay. If I really think about that, I think I'm kind of leaning to the left a little bit here. You know what? If I'm doing that all day, no wonder my back hurts a little bit because I'm I'm leaning just about a a few, you know, leans to the left here. I think if somebody's in the tunnel and they're going full on and you say to them, hey, what if I take away your body right now? You can't move. How are you doing with going forward in that tunnel? Probably changes things a lot. What if I take away your hearing or your sight? Let's go less. What if I just chop off your legs? How are you doing with that? Like, literally, I mean it. Literally, could you imagine you're doing everything you're doing and yeah, you hear it and yeah, you acknowledge it and I chop off your legs and I say, you can't use your legs anymore. How's that change everything? If you're really playing into that and feeling that, it probably changes your perspective. Maybe you take a step back and suddenly you realize you don't have to go hit that wall. Maybe there's some other things you want to think about while you're going on, and then you can let go. So let's go there. Let's go into that place where somebody's like, okay, that made me think. And yet they're going at such speed. It's like when you're standing on a train platform and that train is not stopping at your station and it just goes by in a blur. That's how life feels. And then to say, yes, okay, David, I hear what you're saying, but I don't even know 
how to slow down. I don't even know. That's why something like a brick wall moment forces the slowdown. But for those people who want to avoid that, I think this is the discombobulation and the the discomfort of what does it even look like to begin to unpick being in the tunnel? What does that even look like? I mean, if there's a heart attack or if there's dropping and bleeding and like what happened to you, shit gets real, real quick and you have to adjust for that. But for somebody who doesn't want to take it that far, what would you say if you were working with someone, they say, I get it. What could they do? How I just said, you know, where are you at in your body? Get into it. I thought for a moment, lay down on the floor of the train, close your eyes, take a breath. What do you feel? Can you feel the movement of the train? How does it feel? Does it feel out of control? Is it moving too fast? Is it rocking? How would you like it to feel? Would you like it to feel a little bit more steady? I can tell you when I was going as I was going, you know, back in that moving all around, just get to the holiday. If I had taken a breath, taken a step back, just tried to sit with that for a moment, instead of letting it all, you made a comment saying, oh, you know, we get ourselves caught up in just, you know, incessant busyness. If I had stepped outside, I'd say, oh my God, the, the world's going by outside the window. Wow. Wow. That's, hey, there's actually, there's trees out there. Let, let me see those. I didn't see those because they were a blur because I'm not looking. I'm not paying attention. I'm not focused enough. If you can just take that in, that's a way to start to wake up. So that could look like, let's Play-Doh this as we draw this to a close. That could look like asking for sabbatical potentially. What else could it look like to slow slow oneself down? I have a client I was coaching, very senior leader, Mandy, and she is expert in what she does and has this same kind of thing going with her. And I recognized it right away and seeing it. And she took it to the end and she got fried. I mean, it impacted her emotionally, physically. She was She was like dying inside, literally. And so for her, she needed to literally pull out completely. She took a break. So to your point, it could be sabbatical. It could be a respite. It could be doing less meetings. It could be creating quiet space for yourself. It could be making sure you get seven hours of sleep a night. It could be spending time with a loved one every day. It could be whatever it is that is a gift back to yourself that helps you realize everything that you're doing that might be work-related doesn't mean it has to come at the expense of everything else that's part of your life. Let's do a quick recap. So David has reminded us to take our mortality seriously, like really seriously. Point number two. Get into your body and listen like your life depended on it. I love David's analogy of laying down in the proverbial train that's in the tunnel. Get into your body and pay attention. Tatiana Polyakova said the same thing in episode 55. Get really honest about where you're at. Then you can decide if you want to make a change. 
Number three, and I'm going to add this third point here. If you slow down enough to check in with your body and ask this question, what am I trying not to know? Expect your excuses to come hard and fast, but I can't travel less. I can't delegate those meetings. I can't ask for time off. It's just not done in this industry. I can't decline that project. I can't tell my boss that I need support. In the blur of the tunnel, it never looks like there are any choices, right? I remember the wise words of a mentor in my investment banking job. He said to Everybody is replaceable, Mandy, no matter how skilled or diligent or committed, and I've never forgotten that. So in the past 15 years, I have coached so many people who have given everything, scooped themselves out for their jobs at the expense of mental and physical health and personal relationships. And in spite of that commitment and the personal sacrifices that they've made, they were still made redundant or sidelined because of politics. And then there's this sense of shock and disbelief. Like, I, I, I can't believe I gave everything and this still happened. There's so many emotions on the back of that. Giving to the point of breaking oneself does not buy you immunity from pain or change or redundancy or politics. It just doesn't. Let's close out today's conversation with a brick of wisdom. And if you're new here, I ask every guest to leave you with an insight for your journey. So David, what have you got for us? First of all, just gratitude. And I mean that, Mandy. Gratitude. Thank you. Thank you to a listener. Thank you to listeners. Because that's here, here. There's knowing your limitations and learning to live with them is power. It's powerful for you and for what you do in the world. So that's a great learning. And so I would invite anyone to really take a look at that. Come to understand your limitations so that you know how you can better serve in the world. Here's something that somebody gave to me recently, and it kind of encapsulates a lot of what we've talked about, Andy. There's a chapter behind it, but I'll give you just the title of the chapter. And it said the following. Here's how to live. Don't die. There's a distinction between leaving it all on the field and being excellent and committed to what you do and having boundaries and self-awareness. That added little extra of the overachiever, it might feel like an edge and maybe it is for a time. But what I'm hoping these conversations get you thinking about is the cost of consistently leaving it all on the field. What is underneath that driver? And are you open to seeing success differently in a more self-compassionate and sustainable way? That's what these episodes are all about. Thank you to David. If you want to know more about him, his details are in the show notes. And who do you know who needs this conversation in their earphones? Stat. If this episode moved you, please go ahead and leave the show a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And thank you to those of you who have already done that. It really helps the show more than I can say. The show is on a creative magic break until the 22nd of June. So please enjoy any episodes that you've missed in the meantime. And as ever, thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad you're here.